Happy New Year and welcome to the Documentary Photography Review Podcast. In this episode, I'm speaking with Aditya Putra, an Indonesian documentary photographer who has recently graduated from the London College of Communication with a master's in photojournalism and documentary photography. During his time at the LCC, Adi created a body of work entitled The Price of Paper, which explores the issue of deforestation in Indonesia, its causes and impact on the environment, the wildlife and those who live in the communities affected by it. The complete body of work, made up of prints and a web documentary, will be exhibited at the final degree show from the 8th to the 16th of January at the LCC in London. In the interview, we discuss the story behind The Price of Paper, Addy's experiences in exploring the subject of deforestation and its impacts, as well as how he is going about getting it into the public domain, and much, much more. Show notes for this episode can be found on the Documentary Photography Review website by going to documentaryphotoreview.com forward slash episode 15. And now for my interview with Aditya. Enjoy. If you can introduce yourself and oh. maybe uh, yeah, share your journey into documentary photography, that'd be great. Okay. So um, my name is Aditya Putra. I'm, I was born in Indonesia. Uh, and basically, I, want to go in, I wanted to go into science. And so I took uh, my, my first bachelor's degree in biochemistry. I, I graduated biochemistry. I did research for two years in neuroscience. And then I realized this is not really for me. Not, not that there's anything wrong with neuroscience. It's just personally speaking, I don't like doing research. The whole practice of doing research itself, for me, it's quite heavy. And I'm, apparently I'm not that good of a researcher anyway. So I, I found out about photography. That was two years ago, 2012. Um, I picked up photography just because a friend of mine is like, hey, you should do photography. So uh, I, I just got a camera, random camera, whatever, an SLR, um, just started shooting. And I learned that it was actually very much fun learning about cameras, learning about all those f-stops and all those kind of stuff through the power of internet, the power of books and stuff like that. And I basically started doing photography. Approximately half a year after doing started doing photography, after I started doing photography, I came across uh, a photographer, David Duchamin, uh, who's based in Vancouver, and I looked at his work. He's a, he's a travel photographer, and I fell in love with the, his work. It's a very much a storytelling perspective on photography, which for me back then is something completely new. I, I have basically loved it so much, and I want to know, what, what, what is this? I want to tell more about this, and learn about this whole idea of this idea of storytelling through photography, that you can tell stories, that one photo can mean a lot of stuff, and those kind of things. And basically, I learned more and more of that. And uh, I started doing more and more of travel photography. And that took me even further to photojournalism or documentary photography, I suppose. And uh, I enrolled myself in the London College of Communication, Master of Arts in Documentary Photography. And yeah, here I am right now. Mm-hmm. I'm about to do my final exhibition next, next week. So mm-hmm. there, that's how it got me here, I suppose. Right. <laughs> Great. The body of work that you're going to be showing at the final degree show um, is called The Price of Paper. Can you maybe share a bit about that? Yeah, um, the journey has been quite interesting. What happened was basically after my, uh, after half a year of learning documentary photography in LCC, um, we were supposed to think about our final project. And I was was somewhat struggling because I wanted to do something about Asia. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do something about uh, modernization, I want to do something about culture, I want to do something about people, basically. I want to tell the stories. And I was wondering, I, I couldn't figure out what I wanted to tell, really. Until I found out that suddenly, 
2013, Indonesia overtook Brazil as the number one contributor of deforestation. Right. And I found that's quite interesting. I mean, I know that there's always been this big thing about Brazil being number one contributor to deforestation, but now Indonesia has overtaken it. So I thought, oh, okay, it must be about you know people cutting down trees to sell and all this kind of thing, because usually that's why I hear. So I did more research into that. I um, met a couple of people, talked to a couple of people, and they told me that actually wood, wood mills contribute very little to the deforestation in Indonesia. And that surprised me in a way, because I always thought wood milling is one of those things that contribute quite a lot to deforestation. Mm-hmm. So I asked them, what, so what is it? And they said, it's paper. Apparently, a lot of trees are being cut down to, uh, to be replaced by um, acacia plantation, trees that will be used to make paper. Right. And I was like, okay, that's, that's new. That, that's something new to me. I, I've never thought of paper as being something that's completely destroying the world. But then I re- people get telling me like, oh, it's the, one of the most major contributors of deforestation in Indonesia. And I'm like, I should know more about this. So basically, I did a little bit more research into that. And I learned that in Indonesia, apparently, because the uh, the wood, the, the original forest is replaced by plantations, it's not considered as forest cover loss. Right. It's considered as, well, at least there's greeneries. At least, you know, there's, there's trees. So it's the same thing for Indonesian government. Mm-hmm. But as we know, it's not. It's really, really not. One of them is has multiple, multiple, like thousands and thousands of species of wood, different kinds of wood, different kinds of animals that live in like this very complex ecosystem. And suddenly you basically destroy all that and change them into one mono, um, uh, one cultivation of acacia trees, mm-hmm. which basically means A, you're destroying a whole lot of species and B, you're changing all the ecosystem. It's completely different. But for them, it's the same thing. For the government, for for the sake of research and those kind of things, at least for in Indonesia, it's the same thing. Looking into that, I, I knew I wanted to do something about deforestation because for me back then, it was something um, that has been done. It has been done a billion times about you know people cutting down trees. But this time, it, I, want, I want to try looking into something different. I wanted to see if, if is it really that bad? Is deforestation really that bad? Um, how does it affect the people around it? I asked myself. So I just went there. I actually went back to Indonesia, mm-hmm. uh, contacted a couple of people, and they, they told me about this one village that apparently was um, affected by the deforestation that's happening in 2009. So I went there, and I see that apparently it has a difference. It makes a difference in the local community in a very negative way. And it's, 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 um, it, make, it made me see that, yes, deforestation actually had a negative impact. Not always, at least, in a way that we think, oh, it's about climate, it's about whatever. Hmm. No, it's not. It's not only about climate, it's about actually the people living next to it. Mm-hmm. We, have, we see people losing their job, people who used to be rice farmers, people who used to be um, bird catchers, bee collectors, honeybee collectors, suddenly have nothing to do because they lost their forests. That's something very, very visible. Or in, in, in some ways, very invisible because they, they don't do it anymore. Yeah. There's culture lost, there, there's money lost, there's comfort lost for paper. How did that come about? How Which did one? the deforestation, oh, how was it, so, the, especially the extent of it, how uh, was that allowed to happen? So what happened was, I think, in Indonesia, now this is, this is all allegedly. I've, I've looked into the whole uh, law and um, it's quite complex for me because I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out. 
But I talked to a uh, somebody from an NGO. We talked about why, how could all this happen? I mean, here's a thousand and thousand of hectares of land lost. So apparently, according to them, allegedly again, in 2009, there's a change in forestry laws. Before 2009, there's this set of standards of which a company can deforest an area, mm-hmm. the size of the trunk. Basically, you know, it it have to be it has to be less than how many meters in or how many centimeters in trunk size in order in order for it to be cut down anymore, and it's considered as protected. In 2009, however, recently um, there has been a shift in the forest laws. That change is reflected in the fact that the person that can assign the use of a land is basically the minister of forestry mm-hmm. or at least his you know his the people in his um in his group basically can say this land is now for what use this land is now for protected use or cannot be used or this land is now for commercial use and that's literally just what happened basically at one point this company just got a, a license to cut down all this land to make acacia trees mm-hmm. and um it just did. If you ask me how it came about, it's, I mean, the easiest answer would be just because the company managed to buy the rights to use the land from a local government. Mm-hmm. And that's literally just that. Right. And is there any resistance from the local communities? Because obviously they've they've lost out in, a, in many different ways. And um, I assume they don't perceive it as progress and embrace it. I assume there's resistance and yeah the the there was resistance there was a there's actually an organization called the um it's all indonesian but literally it what it means the uh, the front to protect the local uh forest basically the mm-hmm. local community but there's a huge resistance and especially with the aid from ngos like world wildlife foundation and uh greenpeace and all, and, and friends of the earth mm-hmm. all of them are included so there are there, people do fight back legally however it's not very useful because indonesia is is has that local autonomy in terms of government so they have to take to the local government first and if that doesn't work then they have to take it to the central government mm-hmm. they took it to the local government but the local government basically did not pay any attention to their um, pleads i suppose so literally all, they they they've been screaming out loud here and there here and there for nothing to happen. I mean, mm. it's it's just one of those things that people don't really pay attention to. Mm. So yes, is there any resistance? Yes, are they heard? Not really. Whether they consider it as a progress or not. When I went there to the um, to the village, they had six hours. Oh, I'm sorry, twelve hours of electricity, mm-hmm. which was by Indonesian standard. If you average everything, the whole country, that's really really good. Right. Especially in a, in a village of hundred two hundred families, that was very very good. However, that that comes at the price of their own forest, mm. in a way, because the electricity was provided by the company, by the paper mill company. And I, I talked with some of them, I talked with some of the villagers, and they basically said, we used to not have electricity, but things were much easier before. Mm-hmm. We had rice, we export rice, we can just catch fish, we can just catch small, tiny little deer in the, mm-hmm. uh, in the, in the forest to eat. We don't have to worry too much about money. Now, we have electricity, yes. But at the same time, also, we don't have any more. We don't have rice anymore. We have to import rice from a nearby town. Right. We, we, we have to buy um, fish and or uh, meat even. Actually, they don't eat meat anymore because it's too expensive. Right. And if they even catch any small deer, it's better to sell them because now the price is so high because there's no more deers all around. Mm. So is it a progress for them? Their answer is no, because life used to be much easier. 
Um, it's it's much simpler in a way. In in countries like Indonesia, where there's still so much rural communities, have to be taken into account that the the bigger question is, do they really want to live as the standard given by the um, city people for the co uh, companies and especially for many many people this whole idea of oh now we're making roads there are now roads there are paved roads and all those kind of stuff going into the village and all those kind of, it's good there's electricity for 12 hours now it's good for the standards of people who live in um, Jakarta or my hometown Makassar or in nearby city Pekanbaru that might be good oh now they have electricity they can watch TV they can even you know charge their cell phone or anything it might be good, but is it really that good for them? And of course, the answer varied. I've, I, 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 I believe the answer will be varied. There will be people who enjoy it. There will be people who don't. Yeah. But at the same time, also, do you really understand the price? Do you really understand that how big the price is if people lost their forests? We're talking about a lot of culture lost here. Mm. We're talking about basically forcing our lifestyle on them. It's, it's very comfortable, I have to say, to have electricity. But at the same time, also, is it really best? Is it really better? I don't know. I really mm. don't. Because I, I feel that my project was not to answer as much as just ask the questions. In right. a way. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's, that's how I got into the whole thing, I suppose. Okay. And how did you manage to actually get access to the, the folks that you photographed? Um, so what happened was I basically got, went back to Indonesia and I contacted a bunch of NGOs. I had some troubles with some NGOs. I had better luck with other NGOs. Um, Greenpeace was one of them that got back to me quite quickly. Mm -hmm. And they were more than happy to connect me to a uh, basically a, a fixer, basically, a local okay. fixer. Yep. He's been there for a couple of years and he knows all everybody basically in, mm -hmm. this, in the town. What I found was uh, in one of my portraits, I interviewed and did a portrait of uh, in illegal loggers, mm -hmm. uh, which is apparently very, very difficult people to get a hold of because they could technically, if, if they were recognized in the photos, they could technically be fined up to 400,000 pounds. Wow. <laughs> 400,000 pounds in a country where they make less than 300 pounds a month. Mm -hmm. He helped me get access to these people. Mm -hmm. He contacted them. They're like, there's this photographer. He wants to come and talk to you guys. He wants to know more about this, about this whole deforestation scene. And we'll try our best not to put your face into the photo or into the video or any or anything or your names and anything. So that's exactly what I did. I, I we met them. It took a forty-five minute uh, boat ride um, into the nearby forest, uh, a protected forest. Mm -hmm. We sat down basically in the middle of the forest while they were they were taking a break. They're having lunch, rice and fish, and we just chat. We just chat, chat. I took pictures, and up till now, I have no clue what their name is. Mm -hmm. I don't know who they are and um, kind of forget about their face also because they've been wearing caps and all this kind of stuff. Yes. But yeah, I mean, I bet that's how I got access actually. I just contact a bunch of people and see which one latch on. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> and in terms of illegal loggers, are they just individuals who are just trying to uh, get wood for their own purposes or are they organized and, and yeah. work for like a, some sort of individual or company? Yeah, that's that's a really really good question, um, because here's the thing: there are different types of illegal loggers. Right. Um, the ones I met was individuals from the village. Mm -hmm. Basically, they work for the villagers. Uh, the villagers give them money to buy, basically to purchase to to acquire wood, to acquire timber 
for their houses or for their boats. It's basically a contract kind of thing. They we give you money, and by the end of the month, we hope to see wood. Mm-hmm. And then they will use the money to buy oil, to buy uh, gas for their boats, and to buy food for their family and their for their own venture into the uh, deeper forest and cut it down a couple of one or two or three wood trees. However, basically, they only work as much as they need because they're basically three people, three mm-hmm. people working the whole thing mm-hmm. from. You know, going there, cutting the wood, taking it down, and distributing it. But at the same time, also, there are groups of illegal loggers who are owned by companies who cut down trees by the hectares and sell it for a lot of money. I guess the question is, if, if for example, there are people arrested for illegal logging, are they really illegal loggers? I mean, are, are, by, by law, of course. But are they le- really the illegal loggers that are responsible for thousands and thousands of hectares of wood destruction maybe yes maybe not it's 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 in a way it just makes it a little bit more complex and it's up to indonesian government and indonesian laws to do, understand that it's not about it's not about fine it's about making it better fines don't work in brazil mm-hmm. brazil stopped doing that like 10 years ago but we're still doing it because we don't care mm-hmm. we just don't care the government don't care about wood but yeah there needs to be a differentiation between those kind of small scale loggers who are providing communities, small rural communities, with the wood that they need to sustain themselves, and then those larger corporations who are doing it purely out of yeah. desire for profit and yeah. uh, for no kind of other legitimate reason. Yeah. If we have a plot of land given to them, we give you this one hectare of land, use it for a village, if you, plant, if you cut down trees, replant them, all those things, blah, 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 they, they, won't, they, won't, they won't cut down other trees. Yeah. If we help them, they, they won't need to open lands. Mm. At the same time, then we know that people who cut down trees are those companies who want to look for a profit. Mm. Yeah. But it doesn't work that way. The whole idea of being helped... Well, there are. I will, I will not say that. I will say that there are. There are help out there. It's just difficult. I actually, in the story itself, actually went to meet a, a village. I went to a village called Dosan. And although I didn't have much time there, I interviewed a man in, in the village Dosan. And basically, he said that he was very, very thankful to the local government because it had made him... The, the, there's this program to improve the palm, palm oil industry in his village so that, it doesn't, so that they don't have to cut down more trees, so that their yield improve, that their quality of their fruits improve. But at the same time, their, life, uh, their lifestyle improved, their, their, their um, income improved, and it's, it gets better. And it doesn't need to cut down trees, it doesn't need to open more lands. So there are local government that, local governments that want to help. Mm. To differentiate between the current governments that want to help and those that don't, however, is difficult. Yeah. yeah. And to a certain point, I would argue that there's more governments out there. There's more local governments out there that did not really want to help as compared to those that do. Mm-hmm. While you were exploring your, your project, did you have any issues at all in terms of hostility towards you or were you prevented from accessing any areas of the forest or the communities and the likes because obviously it's a very contentious issue and sensitive and and lots of different actors within it and so i'm sure there there is the possibility of resistance towards your presence there another thing that i kind of do want to talk about is the issue of race Uh, because i'm half chinese half indonesian my parents are of Chinese and Indonesian descent. Mm-hmm. 
but my face are arguably Chinese. Sadly enough, uh, some of the companies that actually did the deforestation, performed the giant deforestation, are owned by uh, Chinese descent in Indonesia. Basically, when I went there, um, there was this series of whispers and whatnot, which, which mostly ended with them asking me, are you Chinese? Right. And I said, I'm Indonesian. I'm, my mother is Chinese, my dad's half Indonesian, I'm Indonesian. It matters not whether I'm, you know, a Chinese descent. And basically, they they, they had this sense of um, worry because right. I'm Chinese. I could technically be working for the company and right. you know spying in them. But then I said, basically, I explained to them the biggest part of the whole thing was explaining to them what I think. I explained to them my the reason of me coming there. I explained to them what I think about the whole deforestation. I explained to them what I think about their culture and everything else. That that issue is always there. But mm. at the same time, also. I want to make them realize that it's not about race. It's about individual. It's just people with different kinds of values. Mm. And they believe that what they're doing is not, they literally believe that what they're doing is not bad. They literally, okay, it's forest. We can change that. You know, it's, it's for the sake of unity. It's for the sake of whatever, blah, blah, blah. Or the sake of my own company, blah, blah. Or the sake of whatever. There is, they have their own reasonings. And it's not even one person. It's about a board of directors. Each of it, their own argument and those kind of mm. stuff. And it's people who are ultimately dislocated from the consequences of their actions. Yes, yes. They yes. don't. They're not the people who are struggling to feed themselves yes. and have lost their livelihoods, or yes. you know, are being attacked by pests you yeah, know, in terms yeah. of their farming and, and yeah. like. So, they're they're completely dislocated from yeah. from the consequences of the deforestation. Exactly. So it's not about race. It's not about. It's it's literally just about people. But the issue of race will, will always be there in Indonesia, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, that said. The people that I've met in that village are the nicest people that I've met anywhere in Indonesia so far. Right. They, I mean, two of them took me into their house for a week, basically, feed me for seven days. It was a, it was a really, really precious moment. It's one of those moments that you realize that, hey, this is why I become a photo- documentary photographer because of people like this. They're living their life as, as right now, as best as they know how. Mm-hmm. Even with all the consequences, even with all the things that are happening around them and there's no way to there's no turning back the forest is lost cultures lost thousands hundreds of years of ways to plant their rice is now gone their children will maybe never remember again how to plant rice in the area but they will get by if they, they have to you say that you had contact with greenpeace and they actually put you in contact with people and, and pointed you in the right direction has your work been picked up by any organizations or publications? Has it been promoted or supported in any way? Uh, not yet, because, uh, well, I just decided I should just come out altogether in January 8th. The reason is because the whole thing coincides with our platform that me and my friend are developing also. Mm-hmm. But no, but I am planning to contact them about it. I'm planning to talk to them about it. I'm planning to um, see if they're interested in publishing it somewhere. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I want to see because I mean it's one of those things that it's it's important very much so yeah it's important to see to it's it's important to be seen in by people all over Indonesia and beyond and beyond and yes definitely. it's just that I think I really want to show it to the people of Indonesia mm-hmm. I really do because we're not the type of people that would sit down and read, docu- read documentaries for half an hour mm-hmm. owing to the whole idea of photography and whatnot I think most people who read these kinds of things are photographers, mm-hmm. are videographers, are documentarists, the, the j- journalists. And how do you think your work would be received in Indonesia? 
That's a difficult question. Um, honestly, with half an eye open, with, with blind eye, I suppose, they just will be perceived as nothing, as a, as a gust of wind. Right. It's, so you don't uh, think it could feed into any sort of indigenous campaign to try and slow down the deforestation and put the brakes there, on Hopefully it? There, it could. Hopefully it could feed into like the campaign. I, however, I'm not interested in campaigns. To be perfectly honest, the reason why is because campaigns are very one-sided. Many, many campaigns are very one-sided. My goal is not to stop deforestation. I'm just saying that my work is not strong enough. I'm not strong enough, but my work is not total enough to tell mm. the whole story. Mm. And I will not, I will never tell people to look at my work and say, this is the definite proof why you should do something. No, my work is an argument. My work is just a piece of the story. It is, but at the same time, it's still yes, a reflection yes. on reality. Yes. It's still Very an true, important yes. part and can still kind of feed in and you know engage people on the subject and raise awareness about the issues, the consequences of deforestation. Yes. No, it's not a complete picture, but then you know to achieve that, yes, it would be too late. Ultimately, yes. the, the amount of time and energy you'd have to put into yes. getting some sort of uh, objective outlook or, or comprehensive, complete outlook on all the players and all the layers and all this is just too much. It's it's monumental. It's so impossible. Someone yeah. would say yes. But the fact that you've explored uh, one element of it, albeit a single element, in isolation, that still I think has a role to play and, and yeah. is still valid and, and yes. still still has credence in terms of feeding into a campaign or raising awareness. So I, I don't think I don't think that should prevent you from putting it out there and and, and participating in that dialogue because Oh yes. Um, raising awareness, yes, I agree. I will Raising awareness is one of those things that I would love mm -hmm. to happen with my work. I would love for people to read more into the thing. I would love for people to look at my work and say, I want to know more about this. Yeah. I would love that that is the whole reason why I become a storyteller. Mm -hmm. It's again, it's like you said, it is awareness. It's literally just that. I, I believe that most pure documentary photography is about raising awareness. It's about telling the story and letting the people decide. And that's I mean, I, I like working with NGOs. I really do. Um, but this one, basically, I asked for the help for the NGO, but I did not work alongside them. Mm -hmm. They did not pay me. They did mm -hmm. not basically help me with anything mm -hmm. except for information. I actually paid for the uh, fixer myself. Mm -hmm. So my interest lies not in any organization except for the literally just the story. If there's any affiliation I could have, it's with the people of the area, mm -hmm. the villagers. Mm -hmm. It's with the local government. It's with the people of Indonesia, and that's literally it. So yeah, I mean, do I really want my story to be heard? Do I really want to be an argument? Yes, very, very, very much so. But it's really, I, I want people to read my story with skepticism, mm -hmm. because I am, I'm a photographer. I have my own ideologies. I have my own, I have my own upbringing, and that will, that will affect the way I take picture. Mm -hmm. That will affect the way I tell my stories, and I want people to understand that it will never ever be objective. Read my story with a grain of salt and make your own decision. And so once once you do put it out into the public domain, how do you intend to promote it and get it seen by as wide an audience as possible and you know, even get it on the ground and to the local communities where you visited? So first, again, I, I talked about this whole um, platform that me and my friend um, developed. Mm -hmm. It's called Untold, Untold Journal. 
it's basically about storytelling. It's about it's about basically small arguments, like I said. It's about telling little stories that for us matters. I'm interested to do something where we can easily share our story because it's all about letting people know. It's all about telling the story to somebody. If nobody's listening, there's no point to make a story. And I think multimedia, online multimedia is definitely one of those things that I really want to do. Well, multimedia is such an old word well, <laughs> word nowadays, apparently. Apparently there's a new buzzword in the, in the streets called web documentary. <laughs> it's the way to go nowadays, apparently. And I'm interested in that because it, it allows more people to look at your work. It's not confined to the art space. It's not confined to books. It's not confined to prints. All you have to do is you can share the link. Mm-hmm. And if one can share the links, a hundred can. And maybe, maybe just one of those people can do something about it. I don't know. And there's that, literally just that. And you're doing a multimedia or, or web documentary um, yes, um, for your project. Yes. Right? Untold Journal will mainly be a web documentary All right. thing. Right. We have to find a way to interact with people with documentary photography and or film. And with that, again, comes down to collaboration. It's, it's, it's about being able to directly interact with people who read your stuff. And I think that's really, really important. That's, that's what makes many, many, many other business, um, online business, digital, digital media nowadays entertaining and or interesting and engaging is because you can actually talk to them. You can talk to the makers, you can have a community and that would grow. Well, that's the thing. I think, I think this technology that's now accessible, available to documentarians and documentary photographers and, and videographers and the likes, it, it's something that if your motivation for doing this type of photography or, or storytelling is about raising awareness and engaging with um, an audience and spreading a word or a message or whatever, then you really do need to embrace this new technology, explore it and, and utilize it because it is the way forward in my opinion and, and to not do so is, well it's just limiting your audience excessively because if you do go down the conventional route um, and just hang things in a gallery, then you're limiting yeah. the audience severely. Exactly. The same with a printed book. Yeah, so all, all these these kind of means that have been utilised in the past, I think if your motivation is to raise awareness, then you really do need to embrace multimedia, so you know, video production and, and audio and mixing it all together. And then also, on top of that, utilising web technology and, and exploring non-linear documentaries and things things that allow people to just dip in and dip out as they see fit exactly um, and catering for that audience and to allow them to explore it in their everyday life um, and not have to dedicate 30 minutes to it or not have to hop on a bus and you know go to the the gallery across the city uh, just to see it so yeah it's, it's great that you're yeah you're acknowledging that very early on and and embracing it um, because I, I yeah I think it's important and I think a lot more people, a lot more photographers need to um, embrace yeah. multimedia and, and the likes. So yeah, you're right. Documentary, web documentaries are very useful, very important for those kinds of things to tell stories. And that's the way to go. Really. And it's not to say that you know you can't necessarily go down the exhibition oh, yes, route and yes, the book yes, route yes, yes, because there is still an audience there, but it's just limited and I think it's going to become more niche. Yes. And so I really, if I feel that if you do want to engage with that audience, um, yeah, it's not necessarily a way that people can appreciate things, the true 
yeah. uh, depth of an image because it's not printed out and you know blown up um, but it, it's it's kind of the it's the way things are done now and I think to resist that is to yeah. to basically limit um, what you can achieve with your story as a storyteller I do think that printed images printed photos and printed books are usually at least for me this is a personal opinion is for myself mostly than other than for other people because I would love to see my book I would love mm. to see a printed image giant A0 size <laughs> that's most but that's mostly for myself it's yeah. not for or for people who want to buy it whatever if they want to buy a print that's a good thing that's mm. really true how we make money but it's not for the sake of storytelling which mm. which is another thing it's a completely different thing it's it's not I, I believe at least for me it's not one thing or the other as much as as you said it is if you want to tell stories the best way is through through web documentaries if you want to sell your stuff maybe use print if there's a demand for it if you want to enjoy your your image in the best way possible print it hang it on your wall put it in your gallery show it to your friends to your family to your peers and all of them will enjoy it and all of them will really really like it all of them work but in terms of storytelling maybe web documentary in terms of your documentary photography practices what lessons uh, did you learn from the whole experience with the price of paper? One of the things I learned was that it, it really pays to slow down, especially if you're using digital, experiment, play around, have fun. Part of the reason why I become a documentary photographer is because we don't want to sit in our desk for 12 hours typing and stuff. Yeah, I think, I think what you say about slowing things down is, is quite important actually, and it's something that I've learned in my own practice through the project that I'm exploring on Food Waste. Um, because I think when you're when you're in the thick of it in that dynamic environment, you know, and you're you're taking pictures of the activities that are going on in front of you, documenting what's going on in front of you. I think as a body of work, it can maybe be too much for people to kind of take it all in, and and it makes it all very anonymous. And I think if you slow down and stop and take portraits of the individuals that you're documenting and and who are connected to the story that you're exploring, it really grounds the project I think it forces you to slow down to stop reflect and engage with those individuals build up a relationship with them and learn more you know have a conversation learn more about the subject so I think it's, it's slowing down is is vital really I think I, I find that myself personally it's, it's been it's been really important and helped me out greatly um, but also yeah just to split up that dynamic all those dynamic images with something that's static and still yeah, and yeah. And where people can engage with the individuals yeah. and stuff. Yeah. If if you go if you go to the MA documentary photography show mm -hmm. and you check um, Carl Bigmore's work, he uses all film, and it it's gorgeous. It's very insightful. Mm -hmm. It's very silent. It it it's one of those things that you just want to s stare and look. For me personally, those images are really 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 well done. It's it's very powerful in its own way. It's not, it's not striking in the way that it's dynamic, because that's the whole, in, with, with the modern, with, with classical photojournalism, classical documentary, it's always about this dynamic look. You shoot something in the middle of its, in the middle of its movement, you shoot mm. something while it's actually moving, or it looks like it's not unnaturally. But with Carl's work, it's very silent. It's very, it's very modern. It's very contemporary. I love that look. Film taught me how to look a little bit like that. Mostly because I'm, I'm while using film, I'm also um, scavenging for those kinds of images. But I noticed that 
my images with this is completely different with my uh, digital images. Mm -hmm. In what way? It's more silent. Right. Mostly because I need things that slow that are not very fast moving. Because otherwise, because mm -hmm. you know, ISO four hundred and slow lens at, at four. Yeah. It's a very exactly high speed. I like it. I like the images. Um, some of the images, especially for portraits, are really really strong mm -hmm. for me personally. Yeah. But also at the same time, I don't get that many that much dynamic images mm. for two things. This is my argument. One is that it's slower. My, the camera is slower. It forces you to slow down really, yeah. especially because everything is like manual and all that kind of stuff. The slowness helps. The slowness captures the images that I really want to capture for that one because I really have a moving image. I'm, I'm incorporating moving images for my stuff. So what I'm saying is in terms of price of paper, I want my stills to be as still as possible and my moving images to be dynamic. And mm. basically that, that's what I learned is that with, with film, I got to slow down very, very much. Yeah. And um, be very, very skeptical is one of the things I learned mm. with talking to a bunch of people in the place because not skeptical as much as be open. Be open to under, uh, finally saying that maybe the government aren't so bad. Maybe the government are trying to help. Maybe the government aren't. Be open to question everything. So yeah, that's what I learned actually while I was doing paper, uh, the price of paper because at the end of the day, it's just a bunch of tiny little problems thrown together into one and people treating it as one simple thing while it's not. It's the story of different individuals, including the people affected, including the people doing it, including the people affected in the whole streams of um, bureaucracy and or political things. So it's very complex and it's very difficult if you just want to treat it as... I wish I wish I had gone into it with that in mind, right. is what I'm saying. Um, but then at the same time, and this is maybe an, another benefit of exploring web documentary, that, well, multimedia and web documentary, is that you get to explore the many different layers of a complex story because stills imagery can only um, portray so much, can only share so much about the story and, and even the accompanying text again is limited and, and obviously that's going to be um, formed by your opinions and, and, and the likes despite how open-minded you may be and, and how objective you're trying to be it's still going to be influenced by that but by exploring um, the moving image and, and doing audio interviews and the likes then you get to explore those many different layers of complexity so much more and and it adds depth to it and ensures that people walk away with a more comprehensive understanding. You know, it's not necessarily going to be a complete one, but at least it's more comprehensive than had they just been exposed to um, a series of stills imagery with captions and the likes. You've mentioned about these things that, um, things that you've learnt during the project with regards to your photographic practices. Is there anything that if you were to go if you're able to go back now with the knowledge that you have now and start it all again, is there anything that you would do differently? You've mentioned the whole kind of maintaining an open mind and, and uh, a degree of skepticism and the likes, but is there anything else, you know, more, more practical that you would maybe change? The more practical one is probably to contact a lot of people as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. That's probably my only one. Uh, well, one, one of the only ones is if only I do all the contacting first and then at the same time do the research, I might get more access. Right. Because, I, I mean, it's difficult also because I was developing the story as it goes because mm -hmm. I, I personally don't have no idea how all this is. I mean, I read papers, I, read, I, did, I did a lot of research, 
but it's all numbers. It's all numbers. So it's not the social thing that I need. But had I contact a bunch of people beforehand, talk to them a lot, maybe I would have more access. Mm -hmm. So research is good. <laughs> research is wonderful, but talking to people really, really, really helps. Mm -hmm. Talking to people actually just go there. Really, I wish I just you know talk to a lot of people and see. Hey, let's go here. Okay, fine. Let's go here. But I spent too much time doing their actual research, like reading about the laws of Indonesia on paper industry. Is the project, has it come to an end or do you intend to explore it further? I want to explore the whole thing further in terms of the social uh, and economic, more economy in terms of the whole, how it reverberates to the whole of Indonesia. Mm -hmm. I know that people don't really care. That's the thing. Part of, part of it is basically like people don't really care and people don't really know. So I want to understand the whole paper industry. I'm quite interested in it actually. Yeah, mm -hmm. cause it, it ties into a bunch of my interests about modernization. There's this argument of why should people care? It's another country's. It's another country's business. It's another country's whatever. Why should we care? I mean, that's that has been always my fear in terms of doing my project. Because mm -hmm. with the price of paper, it's a story about a very small community in Indonesia. Why should we even care? Or at least people living in London. Why should people care about what's happening in a small village in Sumatra? It's them. It's the people of Indonesia. It's not... It's not English people or anything, or it's not people in America, so people in mm. Europe. One of the things I, w I one of the people I followed in terms of uh, I, I like listening to what they say is one of them is John Green, and he brought up a really good thing about globalization. We see globalization as having stuff everywhere, having your Nike factory in India, having your paper from Indonesia. But just because globalization is about having your iPhone from China doesn't mean that that's it. You have to remember that whatever you do everywhere, in UK, in England, in, in America, in Europe, ripples into Indonesia. Because, it, not, not ripples anymore, waves into Indonesia. Mm. It, because literally, you're, you're buying your stuff made in those countries. You are directly affecting them with mm. everything. Mm -hmm. So why should you care? Because now you're not anymore Indonesia, China, UK, whatever. Literally, you're just one big chain of humanity affected by, surprisingly enough, economy. We are all now in one huge chain of community, not only by internet, but also by economy. So any, any decision you make in, with your money here in America, in, in the UK, and everywhere else affects every people in Indonesia. And everything that happens in Indonesia affects everything here. Because again, if, if we ran out of forest in Indonesia <laughs> and everything in Indonesia comes down, it will affect the community here. Well, to wrap up, where can people connect with you online? And um, so you can go to my website, adityaputra.com. I trust it will be shown somewhere because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody can spell that <laughs> yeah, <laughs> unless you're in Indian notes, yeah. or in Indian. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can go to adityaputra.com. You can go to my Facebook, Aditya Putra in Facebook. But uh, you can go to my website. My website will have my LinkedIn. It will have my Facebook. It will have my Twitter. It will have my... Um, Instagram yeah connect with me call me talk to me say hi and there's also the the LCC graduate show oh which yes we've mentioned yes previously, completely so forget about that that's, <laughs> kind of, that's coming up where people can uh, meet you face to face oh yeah um, so I will be in the um, I, I, I will be at the opening obviously I will mm -hmm. be at the opening of the LCC documentary photography and my documentary photography it will be on 8th of January 2015 in London College of Communication in Elfland Castle. I will be around. 
I will answer all of your questions if you have any, if, if you actually have any questions. And I'll be there actually quite often because, I mean, I have really literally have nothing to do in that week. Right. <laughs> Other than that, I put all my time into that because, um, great. yeah, just meet me, I suppose. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very, very much. Cheers. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Documentary Photography Review Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview and we'll be sure to check out Adi's work at adityaputra.com. And if you can, go along to the private view of the Consider This exhibition at the LCC from 6pm on the 8th of January. More details about the exhibition and everything else discussed during the interview can be found in the show notes at documentaryphotoreview.com forward slash episode 15. Please be sure to share the podcast with anyone you feel might be interested and do sign up via iTunes to ensure you never miss an episode. Documentary Photography Review is about sharing stories that are unreported or underreported via the podcast, the videocasts and the website itself. So if you have work you would like to have showcased, please contact me via chris at documentaryphotoreview.com. Thanks for listening, take care and once again, have a happy new year.